Turn with me to the ninth chapter of Romans, where we will take up again our study of this epistle of Paul to the saints that were in Rome. We stand here at one of the great divides in this epistle. There are, There is another, if we divide the epistle into three parts, we can say, and I'm using the terms in a way that most understand them, the first 11 chapters are doctrinal in nature, and then chapters 12 through 16 are practical in nature. The first 11 telling us what God's done for us, and then the apostle appealing on the basis of those great mercies in chapter 12 and following of how we ought to live for Him and give our bodies a living sacrifice and not be conformed to this world but be transformed. Amen. However, when we look in the first section, those 11 chapters that start the epistle, there's another division. And we took a little leave of absence from our study of Romans to separate between chapters 8 and 9 because the separation is distinct and plain and great. As the apostle is now going to enter into a discourse of three chapters in length describing the relationship of Gentiles and Jews to God and to His kingdom and to His church and describe the past, the present, and the future from His perspective of the relationship of Jews and Gentiles to the gospel. And so the subject matter is somewhat different than we've had so far in the first eight chapters. I'm going to read to you the first five verses. It had been my intent to make it that far, but the more I studied, the fewer verses I could see we were going to cover. And I hope that you will be as patient and as kind and as encouraging as you were when we began the epistle. And we opened up with the first verse and didn't make it very far beyond the first word. Because there was so much there. I do not want to find anything in God's Word that He hasn't placed there, but I don't want to miss anything that He has put there. I want to give you the doctrinal sense of the Apostle's words. I want you to understand each clause and its role in those doctrinal arguments. And I want us to gather whatever practical benefit that we can derive from those arguments. Thus my method... And I'm sorry if it's not as slow as some would desire, and I'm sorry it's not as fast as others would wish. But let me read these first five verses. I rejoice in the wisdom of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in these five verses that are a glorious preface that end with an amen Because the apostle pours himself out in a wise way before he takes the Jews apart by the sovereignty of God and limited election of them to salvation. He does a masterful job in all five verses. It is an inspired preface. And I want you to rejoice in it. We are only going to be able to cover the first two verses of it. We are going to see lessons of wisdom and lessons for our heart in them. But I want you to see the apostle preparing his audience to hear the hard things that he has to say to them. 
Paul's reputation was not a good one among the Jews. I'll show you that. They despised him. They considered him anti-Israel. They considered him, in a modern term, anti-Semite, though he was one, and one of the best. But I hope that you'll appreciate these words of preface. We stand on the threshold of some of the strongest language in all the Bible of God's electing grace and sovereign predestination of men in spiritual things. Eternal life, hearing and believing the gospel, and being part of his spiritual kingdom of the New Testament. And we ask, Heavenly Father, that you would bless us by your grace and mercy, that you would open our eyes to behold the wondrous things that are here, that we will not see unless you give us eyes to see. We pray that by the Holy Spirit, we will be enlightened to appreciate all that is written here. Let us humble ourselves in the dust or in the clay and make thee the potter of our lives and our eternal destinies and praise and bless the God that chose us to salvation from the beginning. Hear us, O Lord. Amen. The first five verses. I say the truth in Christ. I lie not. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost. That I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises, whose are the fathers, And of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. Amen. And amen. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for your word that we can read. Now give us an understanding of it. I remember as a late teenager, a country preacher from Texas, preaching in Michigan, and some of you that have been with me in this journey a long time should remember his name, calling Romans chapter 9 the sifter, the great sifter, because you can bring false doctrines to Romans 9, but you're not going to carry them away because they're going to be sifted out by some of the things that are said in this chapter. And I thank God for the journey that he has brought me on to appreciate and delight in these three chapters, and especially in this ninth chapter, which is the one before us. 
before I was privileged by God's gracious mercy to hear Romans 9 from a man that loved it and considered it a sifter, I went to the world's most unusual university, which is located on Wade Hampton Boulevard in a city near to you, where in the New Testament syllabus for New Testament survey, after having dealt with chapters 1 through 8 in considerable detail and length, it was able to get rid of chapters 9 through 11 in one sentence. These three chapters pertain to the nation of Israel. Bye-bye. Let's go to chapter 12. I thank God for the course He's led me on. Back then, I didn't know better. Sitting in that class at Bob Jones University, now I've given it away, I didn't know enough to call the teacher's hand about that syllabus. I did a couple years later, and we rejoice in it. And I thank God for it. And brethren, please, don't be impatient with me about Romans 9. We want to get everything we can out of this chapter. We are going to lift up the mighty God as the potter of all men. And it is going to put us in the dust. Or as I said in my prayer, in the bucket of clay at His left hand, which He reaches into and fashions vessels of honor and vessels of dishonor. He's going to illustrate His sovereignty among the eight sons of Abraham. He's going to manifest and illustrate His sovereignty among the twins of Isaac. He's going to show His sovereignty against the greatest ruler in the world in the time of Moses, Pharaoh. He is going to answer your objections. And some of his answers won't be too gentle, and they won't be very long. He is going to cut to the chase and remind you that you do not have a right to question him, nor do you have a right to even consider that he is unrighteous, because he is altogether righteous in his dealings. He is going to go on to show that we Gentiles that were cut out, for the most part except for exceptional individual men and women, have been brought in to hear and believe the gospel. Praise His glorious name. And He's going to show that those who were originally presented with the gospel and offered the terms of a natural covenant and the message of an everlasting covenant lost it by not pursuing it the way that they were instructed to pursue it. We're going to see the blindness of men when it comes to the gospel imposed on them by God Almighty, and how that the Lord Jesus Christ is a stumbling block to some and is precious to others. And if He is precious to you this morning, it is by His mercy and His grace. The apostle, though unliked by the nation of Israel, is going to take the nation of Israel apart and show them that they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. Not all of the national, political Racial group of people called Israelites were truly Israelites. 
elect Israelites, spiritual men and women in the sight of God. He is going to declare that. Hard doctrine for Jews that put much of their confidence for God's blessings and favor in their national status as God's people and in their blood relationship to the fathers. O Lord, have mercy upon us. We are at this present time at the preface, and it's glorious. These five verses are designed by the Holy Spirit and used by our brother Paul in few words to show what a compassionate, caring spirit and heart he had for Israel, and especially for the Israel of God. If you already know the first verse of the 10th chapter, comparable to these five verses, it says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. He simply uses more words and stronger words right here at this point to show the Israelites that he was not a hater of Israel, nor was he one to denigrate their national privileges, but he lists their privileges in that fourth verse and that fifth verse as being stupendous compared to other nations. And he does it with a purpose, and that's to prepare his audience to hear the hard things that are coming. And I love the wisdom of the Holy Spirit in designing it so, and we should take some instruction from that. The Apostle Paul wrote Romans to believers in Rome part of which were Jews and part of which were Gentiles. And because of the heresy that was being promoted out of Jerusalem throughout the apostolic era, he had to fight Jewish legalism. And so much of Romans 2, 3, 4, and then 7, was spent combating Jewish legalism. And by that expression, we mean the Jews placing their confidence in the law of Moses as the basis for their justification and acceptance before God. That's what we mean by legal. And when we call it Jewish legalism, we mean the Jews looking to their national gifts from God as the means to pleasing God. And so the apostle had to deal with that, and he's going to deal with it further in these three chapters from a different standpoint by showing God's electing grace even in those national descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and showing, brethren, do you know what's about to be said here? Jews have been cut off, and you, wild goyim, heathen, pagans, graft in. Powerful doctrine overwhelming doctrine unless we start very gently and express great affection and we remember the great blessings that this nation had and then we use illustrations dear to their hearts that they had heard as children about the children of Abraham, Ishmael and Isaac and the six sons of Keturah and the twins of Isaac and Rebekah and the dealings of God in Egypt with Pharaoh to deliver his people. We're going to see all that as the Apostle lays his foundation with inspired wisdom before he says such hard things. The theme of this chapter is God's sovereign election to eternal life included only some Jews 
and included only some Gentiles. The limited election within the nation of Israel being the hardest fact for that part of his audience to bear. And it was a hard one. Paul has already denied salvation to the Jews based on national or natural privileges in chapters 2 and chapters 3 when he reduces the Jews to the same status as that of the Gentiles. When he said in chapter 2, the last couple of verses and the verses that came before him, that he is not a Jew, which is one outwardly. Neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh. Pointing out something that had been taught in the Old Testament, that a true Jew was one that had circumcised his heart, and that God had circumcised his heart. Both parties being active in the work of circumcising their heart and humbling themselves before God and turning away from the sins that were cut off. And he is a Jew, which is one inwardly. So the apostles already laid hints of what is coming. But oh, he's going to get very specific as we proceed through chapter 9. He's going to go much further here. When he cuts off natural branches of the Jews to stick in wild branches of the Gentiles, as we get to chapter 11, though it's taught in chapter 9, that's hard doctrine. And we want to appreciate the way that the Holy Spirit and Paul build a foundation before they lay that on their audience. Paul had exceptional knowledge of the Jew and Gentile situation above anyone else. I could turn you to Galatians 4 or Ephesians chapter 5 where it says that these things had been hidden from the foundation of the world but had been revealed and made known to Paul. Paul had special understanding of the relationship of Gentiles and Jews to the gospel of Christ, to Christ himself, to each other, and to the church, the kingdom of the New Testament. He tells us that about himself. We need to remember that, though I am not going to take you there. Remember that our brother had to fight Jewish legalism everywhere. Chapters 2 through 8 of this epistle are mostly about it. 2 Corinthians 3, all six chapters of Galatians, Ephesians chapters 2 and 3, Philippians chapter 3, all of Hebrews is dedicated to combating Hebrews for putting confidence, Jews or Israelites, I meant by Hebrews, putting confidence in the things of Moses and their national privileges. And the national privileges were indeed great. And the national privileges were indeed from God. They were Jehovah's religion. But there was no justification in Jehovah's religion of the Old Testament. It was but a schoolmaster to bring us to Jesus Christ, by whom we are justified freely by His grace that is in Christ Jesus. Romans 9 is generally forgotten, neglected, or corrupted by most Christians, for it overthrows so many of their ideas. We had mentioned in the prayer that was made before I took this pulpit that... It is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. In that 16th verse of this ninth chapter, that sure does undo a lot of evangelistic soul-winning efforts made by so many. Praise God for the brevity of his language and the concise power that it has. It exalts the will of God over the will of man like no other chapter. It puts man in the dust, as I've mentioned. It teaches election and predestination in the strongest of terms, though without emphasizing those terms themselves. 
The chapter begins with this preface. We're going to deal with the first two verses. I say the truth in Christ. I lie not. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. With these two verses, this one sentence, the apostle introduces himself and the grounds and basis on which he has to say some hard things about the nation of Israel. He expresses to them his great affection for them and his great concern for them and the burden and heaviness and sorrow that he lived with continually desiring their salvation, as he tells us in 10.1, which I've already quoted. The first thing I want us to recognize here is that the apostle comes forth with this gentle introduction because of his bad reputation among the Jews. So he introduces his subject gently and benevolently and prudently protects his own character as he goes forward. It was going to be hard for the Jews to receive what he's going to write. For he's going to describe an election within the nation that excludes many of the Jews. That's very hard for them to believe. They considered their election under Old Testament terms where they as a nation were chosen and every other nation was excluded. But now the apostle is going to show that within that nation there's only a small portion that are elect and God's brought in elect from other nations to replace what was lost in the reprobation of some of Israel. He had to take special precautions and compromise his greater knowledge at times to placate the Jews. Review this with me. In Acts chapter 16, when he found a fine young man who had been converted on his first evangelistic trip with Paul and Barnabas named Timothy, and when in chapter 16 he is traveling with Silas and he comes and sees Timothy again and takes him into the ministry and uses him, and Timothy traveled with Paul from then on, what did he do to Timothy before he took him? He circumcised him because his father was a Greek, and all the Jews in that part of of Turkey knew that his father was a Greek. So they knew he wasn't circumcised. Circumcision was obnoxiously foolish to the Greeks as something really weird that the the Jews had. And so notice that Paul, though he is carrying a message from the council of Jerusalem, that circumcision is entirely unnecessary for Gentiles, he circumcises Timothy. And I'm pointing out what he had to do to enhance his ministry to gain an audience with the Jews. Because they would have known about Timothy's father being a Greek, he circumcised him. I find it very interesting that he's Timothy's accompanying him, carrying the rules from the Council of Jerusalem that said circumcision wasn't necessary, but Paul circumcised Timothy. Now in Galatians chapter 2, did Paul circumcise Titus? No, because then a doctrinal argument was leveled against him, and when it came to that kind of pressure, forget it. I'm not going to circumcise him. He was not going to give place to those false teachers in Jerusalem. No, he said, not for an hour. I want you to understand the apostle's wisdom. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Let's look at a verse. 
1 Corinthians 6. I say the truth in Christ. I lie not. My conscience also bear me witness in the Holy Ghost. That is an oath. That is swearing. That is calling God to record upon Him and His words that He is speaking the truth. He is adding the greatest force, name, and authority in the universe to bolster His words because He wants to convince His audience how much He cares for them and how much He appreciates the national privileges of the Jews before He describes the election within the Jewish nation. But let's go back to our first point. The wisdom of the Apostle and the wisdom of the Holy Spirit in designing these words to warm his audience toward him. Notice in verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 6, All things are lawful unto me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Here the apostle is describing things that he could do, things that he personally would do. But he would not do them in front of other churches because they were not expedient. They were not efficient. They were not effective toward his desired end of the salvation of men. When I say the salvation of men, I mean the conversion of God's elect from error and ignorance to truth and righteousness. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9, where he explains this same point with more detail. This is wisdom for us. It's Holy Spirit wisdom, and it's what put these words at the front end of Romans chapter 9. Because Paul had a bad reputation. I remind you that when he wrote the book of Hebrews, which was addressed to the Jews of Judea, he did not tell them who the author was though his manner of starting an epistle was to say, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Oh, not in Hebrews. He just starts out with their God. God, who at sundry times. Because if he would have started out with Paul, it would have diluted the effectiveness of that epistle to a Jewish audience. They didn't like him. They knew that his chosen field of endeavor was with Gentiles rather than Jews. They knew that when he preached to those Gentiles, he told them that the customs of Moses' law were not necessary for them. Those two things bothered them immensely, even among believing Jews, who still had both covenants and kept both covenants. They still had animal sacrifices. They still had the Passover. They still had Pentecost. They still did things... With Moses' temple, I'm speaking of Moses' ceremonies in that temple, and yet we're followers of Christ. Even the apostles would get our brother Paul, as I'm going to show you in just a moment, and have him take a vow upon himself that was straight from Moses. 1 Corinthians 9. These are words of wisdom. Verse 19. For though I be free from all men, Yet have I made myself servant unto all, that I might gain the more. He's explaining his motive. His motive is to gain, to save as many as he can. And so he's willing to accommodate and adjust 
accordingly, unless there is a doctrinal issue at stake when he will not. Verse 20, And unto the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might gain the Jews. To them that are under the law, as under the law, that I might gain them that are under the law. To them that are without law, as without law, being not without law to God, but under the law to Christ, that I might gain them that are without law. To the weak became I as weak, that I might gain the weak. I am made all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. And this I do for the gospel's sake, that I might be partaker thereof with you. That I can help you be converted, I'm willing to make these adjustments in my personal life. I'm willing to compromise my personal knowledge of things in order to stoop to the weakness of some without law of Gentiles, act like a Jew when with Jews, but not when he was causing hypocrisy among other Gentiles, for he rebuked Peter for that action in Galatians chapter 2. I want you to appreciate why we have these five sentences, these five verses opening up Romans 9. It is an inspired preface to prepare his audience for the hard things coming. I want you to understand the role of the, the words here. And I want you to understand the wisdom of the Holy Spirit that we should seek to emulate when we have something hard to say to someone. We should be able to begin with praise. We should be, we should begin with our heart's compassion and our heart's desire and our sorrow that they're not converted and so forth and so on. Look at Acts chapter 21 with me. Acts chapter 21. And see the apostles, that is the apostle Paul, willingness to submit to a request by the apostles in Jerusalem. Now for the last couple of chapters in the book of Acts, leading up to this chapter, he has had the intent to make it to Jerusalem by Pentecost, and he tells us that. And Luke tells us that about him. And beginning at about verse 17, when the apostle arrived in Jerusalem, the brethren and the apostles there received them. I'm not, I don't want to read this long passage. But first of all, Paul declared in verse 19 what things God had wrought among the Gentiles by his ministry. Then the apostles there in Jerusalem said, look at how many Jews there are that believe. In verse 20, and brother Paul they're informed of thee some pretty bad things in verse 21 that you're telling the Gentiles to forsake Moses. Verse 22, you know what's going to happen. The multitude's going to come together. They're going to want to know where you stand. Why don't we head them off by you taking a vow upon you? And and they describe that in verse 23. We have four men which have a vow on them. Them take and purify thyself with them shave their heads, and so forth. And it goes on and describes this oath. Verse 25, they tell the apostle, this isn't for doctrinal compromise. As touching the Gentiles which believe, we have written, Acts 15, and concluded that they observe no such thing, save only that they keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood and from strangled and from fornication. Okay, calling up the rules from the council of Jerusalem. Verse 26, then Paul took the men 
and the next day purifying himself with them, entered into the temple to signify the accomplishment of the days of purification until that an offering should be offered for every one of them. Why did I go through all of that in Acts chapter 21? For you to appreciate and understand why we have the first five verses of Romans chapter 9. Because the apostle had a reputation, which the other apostles knew right well, that the Jews did not like him, and that his preaching to Gentiles against the customs of Moses had got him a bad reputation, as if he hated the nation of Israel. And that the Gentile nations were equally good. But they're not. And he declares they're not in these first five verses. Let's go back to Romans 9. For those of you who know his testimony in Acts 22, when the centurion gets his hands on the Apostle Paul and gives Paul an opportunity to speak in the Hebrew tongue to the Jews, you know, he preaches them a decent message. Right. Uh, decent is the opposite of hyperbole in that sentence. He preaches a great message. And they were giving heed to it all the way until one word came out of his mouth. Acts 22, are you familiar with this? One word popped out of his mouth. And they said, this person doesn't deserve to live. What word came out that was so bad? Gentiles. That God had told him to go and preach to the Gentiles. It's, It's in Acts 22. That is how nationalistic the Jews were about their nation of Israel. And in many respects... Most respects, rightly so. But things they were changing. Because the God of heaven was setting up a kingdom which involved Jews and Gentiles. There's more that could be said on that. It's been said. You can study it yourselves. The apostle was known for statements like in Acts chapter 13, verses 46 through 48. You Jews have judged yourselves unworthy of everlasting life. And and because of that, he gives us this preface. And the first part of the preface is the wisdom that we should learn, the discretion of knowing how to say difficult things. Proverbs tells us that a fool utters all his mind, but a wise man keeps it in till afterwards. You know, if Paul wasn't wise, he would have started with verse 6. For they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. You know, let's just get to business. Let's not waste any time. Let's not pussyfoot around this doctrine. Let's not play ring around the rosy. Let's just nail them with the truth. Because I love the truth of God. I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right, and I hate every false way. Vain thoughts do I hate, but thy law do I love. Paul could have said all that, but there's a place for wisdom. And Paul's showing us that. And you start off with... The burden of his heart. And in case they didn't believe that he really had a heart like that, he backs it up with an oath, and then he lists all the privileges and blessings of the nation of Israel. That's the preface. And I will, by God's grace, help you understand every word of it, and its role, and how it fits together, and why there's an amen at the end of verse 5. Then, he drops the gospel hammer. But before then, he puts on a velvet glove if you will allow that metaphor from your pastor. A word fitly spoken is beautiful, 
Proverbs 25, 11 tells us, and I'm telling you, studying, meditating, reading, and praying over the, this passage, you know, I just as soon go straight to about verse 13 to 24. Forget, forgive me, I'm just, okay, 13 to 24. 19 and 20, really, I love them. I've loved them since I was a late teenager. But the Lord has shown me to love these first five verses in the wisdom that's used in presenting them. Paul was a master at combining authority with emotional appeals and pity. If you don't believe that, read Philemon. Read Philemon and how the Apostle Paul gets Philemon by several different ways to do something for him, for his runaway servant. You can call this manipulation if you want. If you want to be disrespectful like that, you can call it manipulation, but you're not being respectful and reverent to the God of heaven. Manipulation is a good thing when you help a person do the right thing. That's what persuasion is. And the apostle was a master at it, just like Jesus told him to be. Jesus told his apostles to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. The apostle Paul would say to the Corinthians, I caught you with guile. He was a master. He never sinned. Manipulation. Providing arguments, good and bad, soft, gentle, and hard and harsh, to bring a person to obey and do what is right, is godly persuasion. Jesus Christ was good at it, the best, and the Apostle Paul shows his inspiration here. And what he does is two things. He expresses his love and affection for his kinsmen and Israelites. And two, he lists all their national privileges. And by those two things, he provides a cushion for what's to come so that they would hear him out and understand that this man loves our nation. But he has truth from God to lay on us. Second thing we want to notice. He backs up what he says on those two points with an oath. An oath or swearing or a vow is when you say something or you promise to do something or you say that something is true and in order to confirm or prove or enhance your words, you call in the name of God to add validity to what you're saying, to add force to what you say. You know, our nation is still a Christian nation in the sense that in court sometimes they're supposed to all the time. It's been a long-standing tradition and rule of our judicial system. Left hand on the Bible, right hand raised to heaven, so help me God. Right. <clears throat> that is an oath. That is swearing. That is a vow. I will tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me God. When our leaders take office, I promise. And then they bring to bear the promises to be a good leader of our nation, but it's in the sight of God with their left hand on his Bible and their right hand raised to heaven. Serious stuff. The Apostle Paul does that right here. You know, there are Jehovah's Witnesses, Mennonites, and Quakers that will not take an oath in court. An oath like that is worship of God. 
Because it's elevating Him as the highest authority in the universe. Because men swear by the greatest authority that they can call to record that what they're saying is true. More on that in the second assembly when we deal with speech. Paul opened this section with obvious oaths. Look at them. I say the truth in Christ. I lie not. You're trying to persuade something of something. You're trying to persuade someone of something you know they're going to have a hard time believing. I'm telling you the truth. I'm not lying. Believe me. I really mean this. Do you see all that redundant repetition of trying to convince this person that you are telling them the truth? That's what Paul, that's what Paul is doing in the first verse and the repetition there. I say the truth in Christ. I lie not. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost. But notice, in his words, why did he have to say all that? What's he trying to make them believe? That he has great heaviness and continual sorrow in his heart for Israelites. Because he has spent his ministry in with the Gentiles, the Jews don't believe this anymore. That he's a hater of their nation. But he's going to he's going to declare, I am constantly burdened for my kinsmen. My family, you guys are all my cousins. You're Israelites. I love all of you. It's my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel that they would be saved. Now that's elect Israel because that's chapter 10. And by the time you get to chapter 10, you should have read chapter 9. That's why he has to bring in the oath because it would be hard for them to believe this. I say the truth. The emphasis there is on truth. I am telling you the truth in what I'm about to say. I say the truth in Christ. I am a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. I am in Jesus Christ's kingdom. I was called by Jesus Christ. I was shown things by Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the word of God of Hebrews chapter 4. That is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart and all things are naked and open under the eyes of him with whom we have to do. When I say the truth, I'm saying it in Christ. I am calling Jesus Christ to record that I am saying what I'm saying as his apostle in his name, under his authority, and knowing that he knows the thoughts and intents of every heart. I say the truth in Christ. I lie not. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost. My conscience. And Paul's got a, a special conscience, and we're going to, that's point three today. My conscience, that candle of the Lord, that spirit that God has put inside me, that measures me and accuses or else excuses my behavior as whether it's pleasing to God or not, is operating in conjunction with the Holy Ghost. And I call my conscience and the Holy Ghost that my conscience is with and operating with to record as witnesses that I lie not and I'm telling you the truth. Because the next verse is going to be hard for many to believe. And that's what we have, verse 1, 4. And that's why we have the five verses. The preface is to bring two things to bear, Paul's compassion and love for his nation, and two, the blessed privileges that that nation had by God's mercy and grace toward them. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost. Verse 1 is an oath by virtue of calling God into the matter twice. I say the truth in Christ. My conscience 
also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost. This is common for Paul. Look at chapter 1. This is important for those that think oaths, vows, swearing went away with the New Testament. Not a chance. Oh, the apostles, the apostle Paul was awesome at swearing Timothy. When Timothy was the recipient of the letter, Paul had already sworn him to obedience in several places. I charge thee before God. What do you think that means? That's an oath. Same oath that the uh, high priest brought Jesus Christ to speak. I adjure thee by the living God. Tell us whether thou be the Christ or not. Matthew chapter 26. Now that verse starts off with these words, but Jesus held his peace. Did Jesus end his peace with those words? Because he had just heard what is called in the Bible, he had heard the voice of swearing. And that was bringing the authority of God to bear on him as a witness in court to testify. Romans chapter 1 and verse 9, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request if by any means now at length I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come unto you. To get this church, what was Rome at this time in the world? A, a, a little city, a mean city, an unpopular city? an unimportant city, or the city, the head of the Roman Empire. Why hadn't Paul been to visit them when he had been everywhere else in the Roman Empire? He'd traveled as far as Illyricum, he's going to tell them later in this epistle. Why hadn't he come to see them? He had, he brings in an oath to tell them, I always pray for you, brethren, in Rome, and I've been trying to come and see you. Which would look like, Listen, there's more, there's more ships going to Rome than any other city that you've been visiting. Why haven't you come to see us? So he uses an oath. Preached on that, was it a year and a half ago? 86 sermons ago or so. Back to Romans chapter 9. I say the truth in Christ. I lie not. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost. There's the oath. We will have more to say about oaths in the second assembly. For those that are listening to this sermon, you may go to our website, letgodbetrue.com, and look up the sermon, Swearing an Oath. You may go and look up the sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, number 6, which deals with this subject out of Matthew chapter 5, which is what we'll be doing in the next sermon, which will also be recorded and posted for your listening. Romans chapter 9, I want to focus at this point on the word conscience. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost. The conscience is what Proverbs 20 and verse 27 calls the candle of the Lord. There is a light. It's not the brightest light. But it's a light that God has put inside you from the Lord. He he gave it to us. And that little light either accuses us when we do something, you just did wrong. You shouldn't have done that. You shouldn't have said that. Now what are you going to do? You better confess that. You've just sinned. The conscience. Don't you have someone inside talking to you from time to time? Amen. Right. Yes. Or, or it can excuse you. That was good. What you just did was good. That was a good thing. God is pleased with that. That was right. That's what you should do all the time. Do you have that voice? Or have you ruined it? 
Do you know you can ruin your conscience? I want you to see 2027 in the book of Proverbs. Don't take my word for what's there. Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 27. The spirit, called a spirit here, the spirit of man is the candle of the Lord, searching all the inward parts of the belly. If you're wondering what the verse means, there is a lengthy commentary on our website for Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 27. It is searching inside you for your motives, your plans, your intents, and what you're doing, whether it's right or not. Romans chapter 2 describes the conscience as accusing or else excusing our behavior. It's something that God's given to all men. Remember when the woman was taken in adultery and brought to the Lord Jesus Christ and those wicked men wanted her stoned. And Jesus said, He that is without sin, let him cast the first stone. And so the oldest man with the most developed conscience files out. He knows the lustful thoughts he's had toward women and what kind of a sexual life he's lived. So he files out, then the next oldest, until they're all gone. And Jesus says to the woman, Woman, where are thine accusers? Because they had left by their consciences condemning them. Paul had a conscience. And I want to exhort you before we go further in the preface and go further into Romans chapter 9, that when we read words like this, we don't want to just rush over them. Paul is calling on his conscience as a witness. My conscience is in this matter. I am not lying to you right now. I am telling you the truth. My conscience bearing witness that this is really me. These are my thoughts. This is what I am propelled to feel like toward my nation. And I'm saying it with the Holy Ghost. Because my conscience is in the Holy Ghost and operating with the Holy Ghost, moved and motivated by the Holy Ghost. So he appeals to God twice. I say the truth in Christ, and my conscience bears me witness in the Holy Ghost. But we're leaving the oaths. The first thing we've learned here, in looking at this preface, and first, the, I've shown you what the preface is there for, but the first thing we've seen is the wisdom of the preface. Then, the oath of the preface, now the conscience of the preface. And Paul had a special conscience. Look at Acts chapter 23. Oh, brethren, my brothers and sisters, do you have a conscience like this? The conscience is not always right. Your conscience needs to be taught. If you haven't been taught God's word, your conscience will say something is wrong that God's approved. For instance, those who grow up in a family where there are drunkards, they can find any verse in the Bible practically and condemn the use of alcohol. So their conscience hates alcohol. They are convicted by going into a restaurant where it's sold. They hate passing a bar. They don't like grocery stores where it's sold. They don't want to see it used by anyone that's a friend of theirs. They don't want it in their family because their conscience hates it. But then when you come to the Word of God and you learn that God has made wine and strong drink for the pleasure of man and for a good purpose and even for use in His worship, and you take all that in, your conscience is redirected so that you know the error is in the drunkenness the excessive use of wine, not in wine itself. And so your conscience is educated. 
But I, but do you obey your conscience? Do you teach your conscience? Because here's the, here's the problem. If you do not listen to your conscience, if you go against your conscience, it's like taking a soldering iron or an iron and searing it. You dull its sensitivities. And so you end up with a conscience that's seared. And so it is no longer the bright, the light that God intended it to be. It's just a little tiny glow. And it doesn't speak loud enough to keep you safe in the way of righteousness. But look at the, look at our brother. Acts 23 verse 1, and Paul earnestly beholding the council said, men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. You read a verse like that as a minister, you want to close up the book and just take your seat. How many have lived in all good conscience until this day? Have you ever sinned against your conscience? Your conscience ever telling you you shouldn't be doing something or you shouldn't be going somewhere when you're doing it or going there? You know what Paul could say about himself when God put him into the ministry? He said that the Lord counted me faithful as a persecutor of Christians putting me into the ministry. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, because of this. He did not know better. His conscience thought that Jesus of Nazareth was an enemy of Jehovah's religion. An imposter claiming to be the Messiah that was not so. So he told King Agrippa, King Agrippa, I thought within myself that I ought to do many things contrary to Jesus of Nazareth. He was faithful to his understanding. But then the Lord changed his understanding by saying, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Who art thou, Lord? I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. Now get up on your feet and go to work for me. And so the, the, do you know how fast his conscience was enlightened? Ten seconds? Thirty seconds? And he hit the ground. Did he hit the ground running? Amen. Boy, he wanted to get baptized. He got baptized within three days. He got some food in his body. And he's in the synagogue at Damascus preaching Christ. Amen. Look at 24, 16. Acts 24 and verse 16. He's before Felix. He's testifying again. And he says, verse 16... He tells Felix, and herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. Lord God, help us to have such a conscience. Let us examine ourselves and listen to that conscience and train that conscience. And when that conscience convicts you about something, do it and do it with your might and do it now. Because if you don't, here's what ends up happening. And this is scary language. First Timothy chapter four. First Timothy chapter four about the doctrines of devils coming out of the church of Rome. First Timothy four one. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. A hot iron. A soldering iron, searing those nerves. If you, if you are, if you are burned and you, and a scar develops where you were burned, the sensitivity to touch and the sensitivity to other impulses of that spot are less than they were before. 
And you can, you can have your conscience seared. So it's not keeping you right before the Lord Jesus Christ. We want our consciences taught by Him, taught by His Word, that will keep us living, speaking, thinking, day and night, in our homes, out of our homes, in this assembly, out of this assembly, in the workplace, wherever we go, in entertainment, in our hobbies, directing us. You shouldn't have done that. Don't think that thought. Ask God to forgive you right now that that thought crossed your mind. That's a conscience. Paul had one. That isn't his lesson in Romans 9, 1 through 5. I'll tell you that. That's not the lesson. But when it says conscience, and Paul says, my conscience in the Holy Ghost, I want you to have a conscience in the Holy Ghost before we leave this chapter. He's making appeal to everything that he can so that his audience will believe his affection expressed in verse 2. And the glories expressed in verses 3 through 5, he truly means. So he calls his conscience to witness. Romans chapter 9. I say the truth in Christ, I lie not. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Ghost that I have great heaviness and continual sorrow in my heart. For I could wish that myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Now that is a strong statement of desiring salvation for other men. And we're going to get to that next Lord's Day, the third verse. That is strong language. I, He didn't say he did, and he didn't say he would. He said he could. Just to help you out there, we'll get, we're going to get to that. But I want you to note why he took the oath. Because he just made a statement that is hard to believe, especially by someone who had spent his ministry among the Gentiles. Paul, by a statement like that, makes himself like Moses. Moses said, God, if you will not forgive them, then blot me out of your book. As I come to this point right here, Our brother Paul was a special man that God raised up. That conscience that was in him testified that. That he had great heaviness. He had a burden that was on his heart that was heavy. It weighed him down. And not only was it a weight, it was, it was significant. It was of a constant duration. He had continual sorrow over the matter of Israelites that he ran into all the time who were keeping up animal sacrifices but couldn't see the sacrifice of the Lamb of God. And he wanted them to see that. Because he said, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. In in chapter 10, in the first five verses, when he explains the ignorance of the Israelites that cost him so much grief. I have great heaviness. It is a weighty burden on me. And it never goes away, because wherever Paul went, whatever city Paul entered into, what building did he take his message into? A synagogue. And what did he meet with in every one? Jews who were reading the Scriptures, waiting for the Messiah, and Paul would announce the Messiah and prove the Messiah from the Scriptures, from his own eyewitness account, and they would reject it. And it tore him up. 
I think you understand Romans 9, 1 through 2. This is the apostle that is going to write, It is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. Then why did he have a burden? It appears to me that Paul wasn't hiding behind the sovereignty of God like a fatalist, was he? Look at his compassion for souls. Not to get their names written in the book of life like a foolish Arminian, but to have God's elect. Remember, he said in 2 Timothy 2.10, I endure all things for the elect's sake but that the elect might be converted to the true understanding and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and all that Jesus Christ had done for them and put away all those animal sacrifices and all those ceremonies. Is this man going to preach that God is the potter and we are the clay and He's made vessels of honor and vessels of dishonor? Then why does he have a burden on his heart that is great? And why is he in continual sorrow? Because he had a, he had compassion for God's elect that was nearly overwhelming to him and it drove him like a crazy man, madman. He defends himself against madness in several places, including 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and before Agrippa. I ask you, are we like Paul? Are we like Paul? The matter caused great heaviness, a caring heart that was weighed down by a heavy burden, and it never went away. It was continual sorrow as he ran into Jews and more Jews and more Jews in his travel from synagogue to synagogue that did not believe the gospel. He's going to explain why. He's going to explain a matter of proportion in verse 6. Not as though the word of God hath taken none effect, because there's really only a small part of Israel that is elect. He is going to describe some that were given blindness by the God of heaven in order for that gospel to go to the Gentiles. But he had a compassion for every one of God's elect that did not see the truth clearly. No people were offered more than Israel, but many of them could not see Jesus Christ over their animal sacrifices. Consider Paul's unique view of Israel. He was an Israelite. He knew they were the blessed nation of God. They had so many privileges. He's going to enumerate them in verses 4 and 5. That caused him to realize God has blessed these people so much, the elect among them, I want to see converted. If we follow Paul like we should, we should have a heart's desire leading to prayers. For those that give any sign of being God's elect that do not believe the truth, we do not pray enough is what I'm leading you to hear. We do not have a heart's desire like we should have or could have. We want to be like this man. This man is an apostle that said, follow me as I am a follower of Jesus Christ. He shows here the burden of his heart leading to prayer for those that he saw he knew as a prophet were God's elect that were not converted to the truth of the gospel. May we have such a burden in our hearts. May we have sorrow that doesn't let up, that would lead us to prayer for those that we have seen. A love of Christ, a zeal for God in them, but it's according to ignorance. And we want to show them the truth. 
I don't want to race through Romans 9 and get to the potter and the clay unless I arrive at the potter and the clay with the apostles' attitude right here. Because some of those vessels of honor that are God's elect have not heard the truth. They haven't been convinced of the truth yet. And if God would use us in our families, every time, listen, this church is conceiving and birthing babies left and right. Every one of you should have a great burden in your hearts and continual sorrow until your children believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and bring forth good works, proving that that faith is genuine evidence of their eternal life. And when they slip from that profession of faith and godliness, you should have that sorrow restored in your heart so that you're praying for them. Let's not just have babies to have babies. Let's labor and pray and be burdened by those souls as an example of some close to you in your life. Paul said he was speaking of his kinsmen, his brethren, who are Israelites. You have you have those with your last name, either under you, beside you, or over you in family trees. Do you have a burden for them? Now, none of those, not your children. Well, that's not true. Not those beside you, or maybe those over you, have been given all the privileges and blessings that God gave Israel that Paul knew so well, knew so well, and knew so much about. But listen, our children sit in this assembly. And they hear things from God's Word that many wise men and many righteous men and many kings have sought to hear and have not heard. And we want to have a burden for their souls. Listen, the burden should not be an education except in God's Word. The burden should not be athletic prowess and accomplishments on an athletic field, but accomplishments in serving Christ. The goal should not be getting a great paying job so that they're making lots of money the goal should be their conversion to the Lord Jesus Christ completely in word and deed so that they're great in the kingdom of heaven, following the gospel that's been given to us and taught here in the pages of Scripture. And let us not settle for anything less. Let's have his burden and let's have his sorrow for the same intent that he did that God's elect among Israel might be saved from their ignorance and converted to the full knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, and bring forth fruits that followed, that they would be the children of God without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation whom they sh- among whom they shine as lights in the world. That is your goal as a father and a mother, a grandfather or a grandmother toward our children. Brethren, I hope you understand the first two verses. I hope you understand the first five. This is an inspired preface leading into these three chapters. The first two verses are the wisdom of God in designing a velvet glove to bring down the hammer, the oaths of Paul to confirm that what he was about to say were true, and then to open up his heart and admit deep, abiding grief and desire for those Israelites so great that he could, if it were right, and he could, if it would be effective, be a curse from Christ for his brethren. And then he, and then he appeals to his conscience 
And we want to have a good conscience before God like Paul did. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word. May we understand Romans 9 in its full-orbed presentation by the Holy Spirit and not just leap to the potter because there is a preface that God gave. And I hope today you've seen the wisdom, you've seen the oath, you've seen the conscience, and you've seen the soul compassion for other souls. May Jesus Christ bless the preaching of His Word. Amen.